Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And by Doohop. Doohop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn more at doohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Scott McCartney, and I'm glad this podcast isn't called Banking Confidential. It has been quite a week in the crazy business world, and we will dig into some important airline and aviation developments. We'll also talk with one of the most storied consultants in the airline business, Mo Garfinkel who has been smartly and wisely advising airlines around the world for decades. Mo has some opposing views to my comments on the JetBlue Spirit merger, and I know it will be a spirited discussion. I also know, Ben Baldanza, that as soon as I left the United States on vacation on March 8, things started falling apart. Runs on banks, global pandemic, the Dow dropped nearly 1,000 points, Fairleigh Dickinson upsets number one seed Purdue, What's going on? Clearly, the country was falling apart without me, Ben. Now that I'm back from Israel, which, by the way, has far more turbulence of its own, and Jordan, maybe things will calm down a bit. Well, glad you're back to get things calmed down, Scott. In the meantime, there's a lot of news to get to, but since you mentioned Fairleigh Dickinson upsetting number one Purdue, I have to brag on those Princeton Tigers getting to the Sweet 16, not only beating Arizona, but then beating Missouri. What a great run that is so far. And I know this isn't called March Madness Confidential either, but this time of year sports-wise is one of my favorites. There was a lot of talk while you were in the Middle East about first quarter earnings. United said weaker demand, higher fuel costs, and costs from an expected new pilot contract will lead to a first quarter loss. Delta already forecasts a net loss based on higher costs of its new pilot contract. And Southwest, which will have a lot of extra first quarter costs from its Christmas time meltdown, also expects losses in the first quarter. Losing money in the first quarter is historically something airlines always did. And this year is unusual with pilot new contract expenses. With all the economic turmoil this week and renewed worries of recession, a lot of investors sold airline shares, anticipating this was a sign of more weakness to come. I really am not sure if that's the case. I'm still fairly bullish on the summer, Scott, and I think the industry is better prepared to be operationally resilient this summer. And I still think 2023 has the chance to be the first full year profit for the full industry, even with these first quarter losses. But I have to say it's starting out weaker than I thought. Well, Ben, first, congrats to the Tigers and you. Uh, But I know one thing. I was shocked at how busy airports were in Tel Aviv and Amman. 
and shocked at how crowded popular tourist sites were. Jordanian merchants, restaurateurs, hoteliers were celebrating. The pandemic had decimated their tourism industry, and that's the main industry in Jordan. But the beautiful Dead Sea Hilton I stayed at was overbooked. The crowds were significant at Petra. I even ran into Oprah Winfrey and her CBS News pal Gail King there. So Petra and Oprah, two international cultural icons at once. It was a great trip. I know travel can be a trailing economic indicator. People book trips long before they may have financial worries, and they'll go on a trip and then cut back on spending when they get back home. But demand sure looks strong. And I did hear Delta CEO Ed Bastian say on CNBC that Delta had its 10 highest sales days ever in terms of cash coming from tickets sold in the past 30 days. So the 10 highest days in their history happened in the past 30 days. Ticket prices have remained 15 to 20 percent higher than 2019 levels, he said. And some of the recent ticket purchases are affected by people buying out earlier now after getting burned last year by waiting for deals that never came. Maybe there's a travel slowdown coming, and I hear you about it being a weaker start to the year than you expected. But after all the talk about how international travel has been weak, and it has been since China hasn't been traveling, I was just really surprised to see how strong demand looked in Israel and Jordan. It's really encouraging that you saw that demand, actually. You know, international long-haul travel has been the longest pole in the tent in terms of return of travel since the pandemic. Now, some of those people, maybe many you saw, weren't coming as far as you came, right? They could have been coming from other Middle Eastern spots or other European spots, or from the other way in Asia. So we don't know they had really long travel to get to Jordan like you did. But just the fact that sites like that would once again be welcoming big throngs of tourists sends very positive things about what people are willing to do now and where travel is now which again bolsters my view that it can be a very busy summer. One other thing, Scott, I know we all need benchmarks, and I know that the industry is going to continue to compare to 2019 as the last sort of stable year before the pandemic. But at some point, I'd like to stop the comparisons to 2019 because that always suggests sort of a good or bad versus then. And I think sort of what's happening now is important in recognizing where travel is since the pandemic. Who's traveling? Who's traveling for business? who's traveling for leisure, what are they paying, how often are those chips combined. Those are all fascinating things. And looking at what they are is more important, I think, than comparing them to a year when 
people thought about traveling differently. So I know that the world's going to keep comparing to 2019, but I do think that's becoming less important than what is actually happening. It's a great point, Ben. And I think you're right, because travel has permanently changed in many ways. Business travel patterns are different. Leisure travel patterns are different. Uh, so we do need to get off of off of that standard. At the same time, it's it's difficult to look at this year and say, oh, my gosh, travel's up 50 percent compared to last year. And, you know, that may not be as as accurate a picture to think that uh, the increases have been that strong because 2022, 2021, 2020, they were all so severely impacted uh, by the pandemic. I, I think we got to get to 2024 before we can get back to uh, regular annual uh, comparisons. So Ben, a few other news notes. Southwest came out with its winter reliability plan developed after the post-fiasco exam by Oliver Wyman consultants. It seems Southwest basically took the safe road in terms of changes. Southwest said it will increase winter staffing and add more equipment like additional de-icing trucks, plus improve technology in areas like predicting how long it will take to get a plane de-iced and off the runway. It has already said it was improving crew scheduling systems. It's a predictable plan, Ben. I think there's more going on quietly. Southwest knows it needs to find ways to keep crews with airplanes longer during the day, for example. Too often it gets caught with crews in a city but no airplanes, or in other places, airplanes but no crews. The airline refrained so far from making any big changes to how it operates its network. And the question remains, is the network now too big and complex to recover quickly from disruption? I guess we'll find out next winter. I had the same reaction to their plan, Scott. I think it's all good things they're doing and will help them a lot. I do think, however, one scheduling geeky term we should look at is what percentage of Southwest flights fly out and back, meaning they take off from a city, then go back to that city. That's a number that is in the 60 to 70 percent for the rest of the industry, but only in the 20 percent for Southwest. That's why when there's weather in Chicago, United has problems in Chicago, but it doesn't as much affect their hubs in Newark, Denver, San Francisco, or Houston. And so I think if we, over time, see that Southwest is moving their out-and-back flying from 20% into the 30 and 40%, that doesn't mean that they're completely changing to a Ryanair-based kind of schedule, but it will say that they're trying to de-risk some of their flying and isolate more of their flying. And I think they could do that with what they announce, but it's a little geeky and it's going to take time to see, just like you said, but it'll be interesting to watch it. 
Then another news item that was interesting was the repossession of four Boeing 737 aircraft from Flair, a Canadian discount airline. Flair, which flies 18 737s from Canadian cities to leisure destinations in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, sued Lessor Airborne Capital, saying the seizures were unjustified because it agreed to pay overdue fees. Airborne Capital says Flair missed payments for five months. It's unusual when repo pilots sneak in and fly away airplanes, but it's a sign of how much demand there is for airplanes right now around the world. I always wanted to do a story with a repo pilot. I thought that was sort of a fascinating occupation. Usually they're all about grabbing someone's bonanza or maybe a former rich guy's Learjet. Rarely do you see them taking planes from airlines. Uh, So it really was pretty interesting. One other news note I wanted to mention that's of great interest to me. Amsterdam Schiphol Airport said it has begun using NAT's intelligent approach tool to cut delays at the airport and reduce aircraft emissions. NATS, that's National Air Traffic Services, is the UK's private air traffic control company. I went to London to do a story on this technology in 2015 because I was fascinated by it and thought it had a lot of potential. It spaces airplanes out on final approach by time instead of by distance. In strong headwinds, it takes longer to fly the three to five miles of separation prescribed than it does in light winds, so the runway sits empty longer between landings. Distance is the wrong separation standard in cases like this. Time is what matters, so the airplane following has enough room for wake turbulence and the plane in front gets off the runway before the next landing. This has been in use at London Heathrow since 2015, and Nat says it has cut delays by 63% on strong headwind days and allowed three additional landings per hour on those strong wind days. The Nat system, which was developed with Lockheed Martin, is also being used in Toronto. Worth noting that American Airlines, which has a large operation at Heathrow, worked with Nats on the development. What's important for all of us, I think, is to note that it's not the FAA that is developing these smart systems. The the FAA did set out way back in 1996 to work on this idea of time-based separation instead of distance-based separation. In 2015, when I did the story, the FAA had nothing going on when NATS was already deploying its technology. Better technology is coming from private companies like Nav Canada and NATS, which can be quicker and smarter about new systems than bureaucracies like the FAA. I love this story, Scott, and I think what NATS is doing is great. It reminds me of a fun story from my own flying days. You know, I learned to fly initially at what was then an active air base, Griffiths Air Base in upstate New York, and there was an aero club there that I could use because my dad was retired from the military, and they would let us take off and return to that airport, but we couldn't operate at that airport. So I would fly 
to a local public airport to do touch and goes and practice and things. But one day I'm coming back from a training flight and I'm on final looking at this, you know, 13, 14,000 foot runway in front of me. And I'm like, in my mind, I'm ready to land. I was probably a mile or so from the runway. And I hear from the controller, Piper 140, you're number two to land after T38 on five mile final. And I'm thinking, I can see the runway right in front of me and someone's <laughs> going to land before me. And this T38, a little training jet, all of a sudden, whoosh, goes over me, not close or anything. He was thousands of feet above me when he crossed me. He knew where I was putting along. He lands on the runway and it looked like I hadn't moved in my plane in that time. And I think that guy had put his plane away and had ordered lunch by the time my little (laughs) Piper landed. But it stresses this Nat's idea that time is all that matters, not distance. That's a great story, Ben. (laughs) Airlines Confidential is excited to welcome a new sponsor to our podcast, Dohop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Dohop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lower costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Duhop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit Duhop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P.com. Mo Garfinkel is the CEO and founder of Tailwind Consultants, LLC. He has degrees from Wharton and Georgetown Law School and has been in the airline business a long time with clients around the world. I first met Mo probably 20 years ago when he was organizing the Phoenix Aviation Symposium. Tailwind provides strategic competitive advice to airlines, airports, governments, vendors, investors, and creditors committees. Mo and his associates have projects on four continents, And Mo has been involved in some of the biggest deals, changes, and events that have shaped how we travel. It's great to have you with us, Mo. I thought we'd start just by having you tell us how you got started in aviation. How does a lawyer from Georgetown end up strategizing for airlines, airports, and others? Well, I got started in the airline business by um, accident. I graduated law school at Georgetown and wanted to stay in the Washington, D.C. area where I was born. I uh, did not want one of the very large firms or a very small firm, so I picked the firm based on its size and what I could read about the people involved. And my first assignment was in aviation, and that's how I started in aviation. (laughs) Well, that's fantastic. Want to tell us what that firm was? Sure. At the time, it was Galland, Karash, Calkins, and Brown, and like 
all law firms over the last several years. Its name has gone through several iterations, but I, I got an assignment in aviation and then I got another one and another one. And uh, that's just how things turned out. You know, this was in 1973. So we were pretty much in, involved in regulatory matters. We did some M&A at that point, but it was mostly Civil Aeronautics Board. I'm sure you guys remember that name uh, yep. back then. And that's what I did was regulatory work for a while. And then um, in the mid and, and I found most of our clients were foreign airlines. So we represented Lufthansa, Swiss Air, JAL, Philippine Airlines, Qantas, and then the subsidiaries of those airlines, Bel Air and Condor, uh, among others. And I found myself giving more business or strategic advice than regulatory work. In the mid-1980s, I got together with uh, another partner of mine who was also involved in aviation, Mark Kahn, and uh, one of our clients, and we formed an airline, and it was called Air America. And we flew seven L-1011s, and I can't tell you that I came out of there without any scars on my back. Uh, it was a terrible time to be in the airline business for anybody, because this was right after the hijackings and our insurance rates per month were higher than our lease rates. After a couple of years of doing that, um, I realized that the, at that point that the profits were greater in the law business than in the airline business. <laughs> so I went, I went back to practicing law, but then in, I think it was about 1985, I was reading the balance sheets of a couple of U.S. Uh, now legacy airlines, and I thought they had a lot of assets off the balance sheet. So I, uh, I went to a friend of mine who was a lawyer at a much bigger firm, and I said, I need to speak to a really rich guy. So he put me in touch with a gentleman named Marvin Davis in Los Angeles, and I told Marvin, I think we should you know, make tender offers for these airlines. And um, Marvin said, okay, um, I'll give you $5 million to play with. And we launched the hostile takeover of Northwest. We uh, didn't win that, Al Checky and Gary Wilson did. We launched a hostile takeover of uh, United after that. Uh, we tried together with Lufthansa to acquire Continental. But the end result was after 12 months, we had made a that $5 million into $180 million. Mm -hmm. And I could see that my, my strength was more in consulting than in legal. So I started a consulting firm. And that's how I ended up in the consulting firm. And Tailwind Consultants is the third uh, iteration of my consulting firms. Well, Mo, you've been in the business a long time, and I'm sure you could give great advice to an airline who's just going through its own deregulation, although I'm not sure there's anywhere in the world an airline needs that now. So tell us what work you do now with Tailwind. Who are your major clients? What big projects and changes in the business have you been part of? And remember, we only have about 30 minutes here. 
<laughs> yeah, so I've been in this business uh, almost exactly 49 and a half years. So I'm just going to try and give you a couple of, of highlights. Uh, I, I did mention uh, the hostile takeovers uh, that we attempted uh, and were financially successful. Before that, I did. I was a, a special master to sell Pan American's international routes uh, for the uh, bankruptcy for the creditors committee. Uh, in my second consulting firm, we focused on China and we represented Continental, getting Continental into China, UPS in China. I, I think the highlights come down to a couple others. One is open skies. We navigated Lufthansa through uh, very difficult uh, negotiations with the U.S. government and on open skies, and that led to the formation of the Lufthansa United Alliance, and I was one of the core team that created STAR for that. And also when Fred Reed moved from Lufthansa to Delta, we created a Sky Team. A couple of other things are that we represented all of the major Chinese airlines and we westernized them. We developed their commercial strategies, their hubs, where to fly, what fleet plans, their banks for their hubs. And we brought them together with alliance partners. And, and then in recent times, um, we've done, I've done a lot of ATI work, antitrust immunity work. And um, I was one of the people that uh, forged the Northeast Alliance for American um, together with JetBlue. Uh, so those are just a few of the highlights. So Mo, let's let's get right into the JetBlue. So you've been opposed to the JetBlue Spirit merger. Um, tell us why. What's what's your concern if it goes through? So let me preface that as a way of disclosure. I represented uh, Frontier in the Frontier Spirit merger. So um, uh-huh. if anybody believes that that creates a certain lack of objectivity, I wanted that up front, but. I have been consistently a supporter of every merger that has come before the Department of Justice and before that CAB. Uh, This is the first merger that I think is wrong. And I think it's wrong for three reasons, legal, commercial, and um, some concerns I have, competitive concerns. The the legal reason is really the only one that's really important (laughs) to justice. And that is that Spirit is the largest ultra-low-cost carrier in the United States. For justice to approve a merger that wipes that carrier out, wipes out the low-fare benefits that it brings to thousands of people, millions of people, I just don't see how justice can do it. I don't see how they can allow it. To happen. I appreciate that JetBlue has a, a different view and a view that you know, they will bring lower fares to compete with the legacy carriers than otherwise would exist. But I don't see how justice can give up and just uh, make disappear or allow to disappear the largest ultra low cost carrier in the United States. That's my legal concern. My Commercial concern, which is 
um, my opinion, and obviously everybody will have a different view, especially Jeff Blue. I believe that for in in the slim chance that justice will approve it, one of the conditions will be to give up the NEA and um, the North uh, Northeast Alliance, and I think that's a bad decision for um, JetBlue. Again, I'm not JetBlue, so uh, this is just me talking, not JetBlue. But I think it's a bad decision. I think that JetBlue has significantly better alternatives, commercial and competitive alternatives that are easier to implement and would be um, less risky and uh, more profitable to JetBlue. My industry concern is really JetBlue's ability to pull this off if they were to get approval. And running their current operation has been a challenge uh, for them, uh, I think. They are currently in a couple of difficult airports, for sure. But uh, I, I think swallowing something as big and different as Spirit is will create operational challenges that may be insurmountable. Everybody knows that airline merger integration is not for the faint-hearted. It's a difficult process. It's been rarely uh, implemented in any smooth way. And I think that there could be substantial integration problems here when you're um, mixing uh, oil and water, two different models, and trying to move one model into the other. And my concern is, and it may seem like I'm saying that you know the sky is falling, but my concern is JetBlue does this, gets the integration, doesn't go well, things fall apart, and we see the demise of JetBlue, that it, it too could fail because the integration of a different type of model would not succeed. So again, those are my personal concerns. I have some commercial concerns, but none of that um, holds any water compared to what you know, the legal concerns are with justice. So let me ask about the legal concern. Um, it, it's interesting. It, it, it seems to me, and, and tell me tell me what's wrong with it. I mean, I've, I've said, and listeners know, um, I, I think there's a benefit to having a fifth large competitor in the, in the landscape as a, as a whole. I, I've always thought that the, the low-cost sector was the, the easy entry point, right? We see several startups now that are already up and, up and flying. Um, Frontier has big growth plans. That's the entry point for new airline competition. And so, yeah, I, I see the concern about, well, could justice allow taking out the largest low-cost competitor? But it, it seems to me that kind of service would be re- replaced. Um, the, the other low-cost carriers would, would expand. And at the same time, the market as a whole would be better off because um, you could potentially have uh, a a fifth large carrier in JetBlue historically has had 
really significant impact in the marketplace in terms of fares, in terms of um, the, the mint product in the transcon markets, really shook up pricing for um, a premium product. And so why wouldn't the market as a whole be better off um, with the combination of a stronger JetBlue and the opportunity for more low-cost service? Well, because I think you end up with a higher-priced product that may be less than the big three uh, uh, and less, maybe less than Southwest, I doubt it. But I think in doing that, you eliminate the the Walmart customers, the low fare, the low price, the very price sensitive customers who simply won't be able to fly at the fares that JetBlue offers. JetBlue is not a low cost carrier, in my view. It's a lower cost legacy carrier. Right. Uh, it's, it's more target than Walmart. I, I wanted to ask you too about the the operational challenges um, because it, it it it's a really interesting thing. I think there's a there's a lot of concern that um, does JetBlue have the uh, the management to pull this off the the bandwidth and and all that. But it seems to me the JetBlue plan is basically to get uh, Spirit's planes pilots and uh, mm-hmm. and access, uh, particularly in in the Midwest. Um, and it may be the opportunity for JetBlue to end up with a little bit denser seating and certainly more relaxed seating on the Spirit airplanes. But tell us, how difficult would it be if you're just integrating the planes and pilots and rearranging the seating? Uh, I mean, obviously, airline mergers are incredibly complicated, and we have seen airlines really struggle to get through a merger and never really get through a merger. Um, why would this one fall into that category and not, say, a Delta Northwest? Oh, Delta Northwest clearly fell into that category, as did United Continental and American and U.S. Airways. And in a, I think you know Delta Northwest was probably the poster child for how uh, an integration should go. The other two were poster childs for how you can screw it up or how difficult it is. And Scott, if it were just planes and pilots and seating, uh, it might be an easy task. But, you know, pilot integration is not always easy. I've done a couple of pilot seniority integration cases, and uh, those are never <laughs> easy. Yeah. Uh, to go by, but but it's more than that. Yeah. It's IT. It's everything, a- and I don't think there are people at JetBlue, uh, with a couple of notable exceptions, that have lived through an integration and something as complex and difficult as this. And if there's something that can go wrong, it's going to go wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. Nothing goes smoothly. So. As I said, this is my concern from doing uh, almost every single airline merger in the United States and a couple outside the United States. It's a really complex task. And this is um, complex on complex because you are taking a different model 
and trying to change it into your the JetBlue model. So I, I'm, I think it's uh, it's something to be concerned about and, and cautionary about. Um, yeah. it, it, okay. That's my concern. But Scott, let me let me answer your question uh, that you asked about. Wouldn't it be better to have a fifth competitor? Um, and it might be. Uh, although I think competition today is pretty in, pretty robust and pretty intense. But if there were to be a fifth competitor, a question that I would ask would be, would it be better to have that fifth competitor to be a JetBlue spirit or to build a um, substantial nationwide ULCC with Spirit and Frontier? Obviously, my view is the latter, uh, that, it, that we are, if you build a nationwide ULCC, you're going to get the same or better coverage than you would with JetBlue and Spirit because of the um, uh, plane orders that both of those airlines have. And I think you're going to have a much more vigorous price impact on the legacy carriers and Southwest. So that's just, that's my view. Okay, good. It's a good discussion. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Well, Mo, there's been a lot of talk about how the industry has changed since the pandemic. What change have we seen in the last couple of years do you think is permanent? And how should we think of the industry today? Not necessarily compared to 2019, but just what it is now. Well, a great question, Ben. I think um, one thing that's changed, and I think this is a point that we agree on, is we've had a paradigm shift in business travel. The combination of uh, the pandemic and the ability to work from home or the learning how to work from home from a logistics and IT perspective has created a situation where business traffic is never going to return to the levels that it was uh, before the pandemic. And that my research, my guess is that we've lost uh, 20% of that, of that market. And that's the bad news. The good news is that we can see a creation of a pleasure market, which existed to some extent before, but now with people being able to work from anywhere and travel for business and leisure at the same time, I, uh, I, I think we're going to have a pleasure, and you've seen you've seen all the network managers at the airlines, but particularly Vasu at American talk about the difference in that, and that's a significant difference. The airlines don't yet know how to forecast demand in this kind of market. They don't know whether you know Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays are peak travel days for business, and what that means for pleasure traffic. So we're going through a really significant earthquake in modeling, in demand forecasting, and uh, you know what routes to fly and what days are the best and how to price that. And I think you know we have a couple of years till we get a, of experience under our belt before the 
revenue managers and the network managers can better understand, based on a historical perspective, um, what the permanent changes are. I've had conversations with several senior executives, and the interesting impact, which I quite frankly never thought about, was this work from home combined with a pleasure means that New York is a significantly less important market than it once was. Because A, a lot of people fled to Florida, and B, that business traffic that you know was so important to New York, 20% of it's disappeared or whatever number you pick. So it 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 may create some different dynamics in the in the geography and the service and the hubs of airlines as we get a couple of years under our belt. New York's not going to disappear. It's still going to be important, but it's going to be less important. You know, Mo, I think you're right. And I think it's actually a little bit worse than you said. Let me tell you why. As you know, business traffic in the airline industry has largely moved with GDP, at least directionally. So if you think about what the industry carried in 2019 as the base, without the pandemic, the business travel in this industry in the U.S. would have expected to be larger than 2019. And when you only compare it to 2019, I think it makes the loss in business traffic look not as bad as it is. What it really should be is a loss from what it would have been. And that's more like 40 or 50 percent off. I I agree with you, Ben, and I've done a lot of analysis of this for expert witness, uh, a case that I was involved with. And and I agree uh, that it's worse than I said, but I'm just trying to be conservative in, in my uh, forecasting here. Well, well, Mo, you mentioned American and, and Vasu Raja. Um, one of the things Vasu's done recently has been reduced its corporate sales team and, and told small and medium-sized companies that they can just book online and don't qualify for, for any handholding for American. I, it, it, do you think this is this ties into this um, to this reality of reduced business travel? Um, and do you think this is likely to be copied by other carriers? Yeah, well, um, Vasu, uh, much to his credit, is never short of um, ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one is, uh, I think, rather dramatic. I do think it's a result of the shift in mix on the airplane. Whether others follow depends upon whether it sticks or not. You know, this is an industry with a bunch of lemmings. Everybody always ends up doing, not everybody, but most of the the big three generally end up doing what the other two do. And so I think they're going to see what happens, uh, what the results are in American. Uh, And if it works and they can, you know, reduce their sales force and reduce the complications of their corporate contracts. Yeah, I think it it will happen. But the jury's not even impaneled, let alone the jury out on uh, Vasu's uh, corporate idea. So I just think we'll have to see over the next uh, 12 to 18 months whether it works. So, Mo, what do you see as the major challenges to airlines in the next five to 10 years? 
So, Ben, I think in the short term, uh, we're going to continue to have some supply chain issues. We have engine issues right now. And I think those, you know, some of the and airplane issues and maybe not having as many airplanes as you ordered is a good thing for the airlines. But I think we're going to have some supply chain issues. I, I worry about um, two things, uh, one domestic and one global. The domestic issue is the prevailing wages. And I know my labor friends are going to get very angry with me when I say this, but the increase in um, pilots and flight attendants and mechanics and everybody in our uh, pattern bargaining industry, the increases were enormous. Yeah, there were many years, decades maybe, where the employees took unwilling and harsh cuts because of uh, bankruptcies and those things. But I wonder whether these wage increases are sustainable. The next time we hit a deep recession, and we're going to have one, we will, it may not be three years, it may be five years, but you know, we're going to have a deep recession at some point. And the airlines become uh, unprofitable again, uh, or less profitable. I, I worry uh, what's going to happen when the airlines have to go back to the employees if they have to and ask for wage concessions. I think what that drives, as crazy as it sounds, is a movement to single pilot airplanes, which will reduce costs significantly. It's probably not going to be five. It's not going to be five years. It may not be 10, but I think, you know, we're headed in that direction where you will have driverless cars in a decade. Uh, they may not be, you know, the majority of cars, but we're never going to have pilotless airplanes. But we can have single pilot airplanes that are monitored with a drone-like capability from headquarters with one person looking at four or five airplanes or something like that, if need be. So I think that the challenge will be whether the wage rates are sustainable. The global issue I'm concerned about is the spread, the proliferation of current and future uneconomic airlines. And what I mean by that is Riyadh Air, uh, the new Saudi airline. Uh, all the airlines that are in the market because of government economic policies, not because of aviation. And the Riyadh Air, the Saudi fight with Dubai and Qatar, it isn't going to end well for lots of airlines, in my view. And the airlines that are private and have to rely on making money when they confronted with these types of airlines uh, on a global basis, it's going to be very challenging for them, in my view. Mo, looking back over your career, what what surprises you about the industry? What any any particular changes that surprised you? So, Scott, I think the the one disappointment, major disappointment, and surprise is the inability to create 
global airlines, cross-border mergers. Mm. I mentioned earlier that I was one of the core members of the team that founded Star. And when we created Star, we really believed it was a bridge. It was a bridge from national airlines to a global airline cross-border mergers. And that along the way, the nationalistic pride, the uh, xenophobia would disappear and rational economic thinking would prevail. And that would create the basis for uh, global airlines, international, you know, true global international airlines. It's never happened. And I guess it will never happen. And that's to me is both a disappointment. And I think it's um, unfortunate in that we're not getting the efficiencies uh, that we could get for the benefit of the consumer by doing this. And, you know, there were times early on when there was a justification for national airlines, uh, you know, right after World War II, when all this started, the airlines were part of the national defense and security of countries. Okay. And the Pentagon and the craft program and all that were designed to make sure we had aircraft in case we needed them. I think those reasons have less basis today because we're not really part of the national security. And if you needed to call up airplanes, as we've done on a couple of occasions in the last couple of decades, there could be a way to do that while maintaining international um, cross-border mergers and airlines. So, uh, you know, I think there are legitimate ways to address labor's concerns about this as well. But uh, it's been, I think, my major disappointment in the industry. And it's not the industry, it's the governments. (laughs) But uh, it's been a major disappointment to me. Well, Mo, you also now run a vineyard. Tell us about that. Where is it and what kind of wine do you make? How did that come about? Just a passion of love? Uh, yes, it's a passion of love. Um, I started looking for vineyards in 2001, uh, and I couldn't find anything that made sense. Um, we ended up, I have an operating partner. Uh, we ended up uh, in 2018 through a serendipitous um series of events that are too long to tell here. But our winery is in Arizona, and 98% of your folks out there will think Arizona and wines are two words that shouldn't be used in the same sentence. Um, But we actually have a half a dozen really, really good vineyards here. Our elevation is 5,000 feet. We're not in the desert. They call it the high desert, but we get snow. We got snow a couple weeks ago. Um, so the climate is right. The soil is right. And I ended up in this business naively thinking that with my operating partner, who is terrific, and he also owns a restaurant, that I could devote five, maybe 10 hours a week to this. And um, I was off by a multiple of uh, eight to nine, I'm probably spending 50 hours a week on this because we're not just doing a winery, Ben and Scott. We're farmers, we're manufacturers, we're producers, we're marketers. We make the wine, 
We have a tasting room that I think is the nicest tasting room east of Napa and west of the Mississippi. We have a restaurant uh, and we're in the process of building uh, casitas, guest lodging. So this is an experience. It's not just drop in and have a glass of wine or a bottle of wine. And it's uh, it's been a fascinating business for me. Uh, the number of things that I naively didn't know when I went into this about how complex making wine is and everything you need to do. It's, uh, it's been a wonderful experience, intellectual experience for me. And I am proud to say I have at the moment, since we're just starting out, I have the title of CCO, Chief Check Writing Officer. <laughs> well, congratulations on that. It really does sound wonderful. I, I'm curious, you mentioned complexity. Are any comparisons between the airline industry and the wine business? I'd say a focus on customers uh, is the, the only similarity I can see yet. I don't think there's much intersection between the two industries, but I'm willing to learn if there is. Uh, uh, I hope not <laughs> for the sake of, of both the airline industry and the wine industry that that. Uh, and for me, it's been a wonderful, you know, new experience uh, uh, for me. You know, Mo, I bet there's one more comparison. I bet a lot of people want a really good bottle of wine for a really cheap price. Oh, Ben, maybe I should become the ULWC or something, ultra low cost wine. <laughs> I was just going to say, I think there's probably sour grapes in both industries. <laughs> I also serve on the board of Six Flags. Uh -huh. And when I told JetBlue that I wanted to do this board role, and they said, well, we don't see any conflicts. And I said, even though both industries have roller coasters. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mo, for a great conversation. And we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. I want to remind listeners about Aviation Festival Americas 2023, which will be May 16th and 17th in Miami Beach. And I want to thank our new sponsor, Dewhop, for supporting our appearance at the event. Ben and I will be on stage on the morning of the 17th, recording the podcast with the audience and a very special guest. And Airlines Confidential listeners get a special discount. Just go to airlinesconfidential.com and click on the banner and use AC50 to save 50% on your registration. Aviation Festival Americas is always a great event with terrific industry leaders and excellent informative topical sessions. We'd love to meet listeners in Miami, so take advantage of that 50% discount and come see us. And Airlines Confidential wants to thank our sponsor, Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is a leader in aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is driving the next generation of more sustainable travel. Its revolutionary geared fan architecture is allowing airlines and airports to open new routes and fly more people farther with less fuel and much lower noise. Learn more at pwgtf.com. 
Ben, we have several interesting listener comments and questions this week. Joe from Fort Worth, Texas asks, Hi, Ben and Scott. Love the show. How is it possible for an airline like Flair to get behind on aircraft payments and get them repoed? Ben, is it just a matter of not having money in the checking account to make the payments? Or is there likely more to this? My guess, and I don't know any details specifically of the repossession of the Flair airplanes, but my guess is this is a situation that could have been avoided had there been good conversations between Flair and their lessor. Through the pandemic, lessors were having lots of conversations with all their customers about what the pandemic meant for their ability to pay. And some airlines were on deferred payment plans. Some didn't pay for a few months, but had a repayment plan in place. But in all cases where the airline kept the airplane, there was an ongoing conversation with the lessor about what the relationship was, what the airline was doing, was the airline keeping up with the commitments it had made under a revised plan given the changes from the pandemic. And for Flair to lose four airplanes in five months of non-payment suggests to me that they just weren't talking every one of those five months with their lessors the way they probably should have. But obviously the lessor felt that their risk had gotten to a point that they couldn't control anymore and needed to have their asset back. And for that, I kind of blame Flair. I don't blame the lessor for saying I need my asset back when my future revenues are so much at risk. But why did they feel that? Did Flair want to give the planes back? Did Flair have a plan as to how they were going to pay? So I think there's a lot here, Joe, in terms of how this happened. But I wouldn't put the blame on the lessor here. I'd put it on Flair, not because they didn't make the payments, but you don't not pay someone and not talk to them also. You know, it's really interesting, Ben. I, th I think that's that's smart. I also think in, in a strange kind of, you know, random way, there's a parallel here to what we've seen in the banking world uh, this past week. I, I think with with airlines, the small airlines don't get nearly the latitude that big airlines get with lessors, right? Lessors with, that have planes at big airlines, that's a big customer. Uh, they're going to give them a whole lot more freedom or, or latitude, at least, than you get with a small airline, which really doesn't have much pull. Kind of the same with banks, right? Uh, the little banks uh, don't have nearly as much uh, sway with the system um, that big banks do. And, and I think, too, the other parallel to this is if you do get spooked, uh, you want to get your, your airplanes out of there first, just like depositors at Silicon Valley Bank wanted to get their money out first as soon as uh, there were rumors of, of bad things to come. So, you know, this may be a sign of, 
uh, bigger problems to come. And the lessor just moved quicker than everybody else. But it's also, just as in the banking world, uh, once this happens, it can cause a run on the bank. And Flair may have bigger problems because of it, because people will hear about this and stop buying tickets on Flair and, and other things that, that make the run on the bank uh, really difficult for the company to survive. That's exactly right. Flair has run a generally pretty good airline up there in Canada, but this is a tough position for them, I'm sure. Well, Scott Michael from Fort Bliss, Texas writes, Ben and Scott stumbled on your podcast a few months ago, and I'm already a huge fan. I'm currently a 27-year-old Army officer looking to transition out of the military in a few years, get my MBA, and start working in the business world. The airline industry has long been a great passion of mine, and I would love to get in the game. I saw your reading list on the site here, and while I'm certainly planning on getting my feet wet with more accessible texts, I figure that since you're also both professors now, I ought to ask if you have any more academic book recommendations on topics such as the management of airlines. I value your input immensely, and thanks for all you put into your show. It really is a highlight of my week regularly. Michael, my suggestion would be a book by a guy named Peter Bellobaba, B-E-L-O-B-A-B-A, who's a professor at MIT, and he's written a book called The Global Airline Industry, and it is the single best text I know of that goes through in detail all the major things airlines do to make decisions. It's not a cheap book because it's a textbook, but you can get it at Amazon and other places. It's called The Global Airline Industry by Peter Bellababa. Scott, do you have any suggestions for Michael? Yeah, I think I do have two suggestions for Michael. First, Michael, find a way to take Ben's course at George Mason University. I think that would be the best education you could get in the airline business. And second, read the great book written many years ago by my former colleague, Tom Petzinger. It's called Hard Landing, and we do have it on the book section of the Airlines Confidential website. It's a classic on the airline business. It's full of legendary characters and amazing stories. And even though it's dated, it will teach you a lot about this crazy business, but also give you the historical foundation everyone needs to really understand commercial aviation today. Good luck to you, Michael, and thank you for your service. That's all for Airlines Confidential this week. Have a great week, everyone. And if your bracket is busted, remember everybody else's is too. So maybe you still have a chance. Thanks for listening. We'll have more next week on Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.